2015 Person of the Year is? Ah. <laughs> She's an Aranda Aliawara lady. <laughs> Morandora Rosalie Kunoth Monks. Rosalie Kunoth Monks is an Aranda amateur woman from the Northern Territory. Born on Utopia Station, Rosalie moved to Alice Springs. At 16, she played the lead role in the film Jeddah. The film was the first to feature an Aboriginal person in a lead role. After 10 years in a Melbourne convent, Rosalie settled in Alice and started a career of over 50 years in human rights and politics. Rosalie is passionate about Aboriginal people having access to their land, language and culture. Her contribution at local and national levels is vast, including advisor on Aboriginal affairs in the NT, to trailblazer for the Oxfam Straight Talk program. Rosalie has received countless awards, including an Order of Australia Medal, Northern Territorian of the Year, and finalist for Australian of the Year. Still a household name from her many television appearances, at 78 years of age, Rosalie remains one of the most powerful voices for change in Aboriginal Australia. Statement. Don't drop it. Don't drop it. Statement. You know it. what? Get You're going to hold it. I'll hold it. Okay. <laughs> oh dear. You go, girl. What I do year in and year out is not to seek to be awarded something. What I do is to survive as an Aboriginal person. Your darling. Keep going, Susie. Surviving as an Aboriginal person is not easy. Mm. To stay black to hold your language. We are told we are one of the longest surviving continuous culture in the world. Not only in Australia, but in the world. I now say the time for chit-chat, small talk, and policies mm -hmm. from one part of the citizenry of Australia has to come to an end. Yes. Yay. I therefore tonight, as I receive this award, not only on my behalf, the 
There is also a young man, Murumu, up there, who has rejected, has been forced to reject the rest of Australia to reclaim and assert himself almost alone as one of the First Nations people of this country. Yeah, let's, let's be very serious about our identity. Let's be very serious. Let's re-examine ourselves and see who you are. I was sitting on a four-gallon drum, that's those little little drums, day before yesterday in a camp out at Alpra, trying to gather enough dollars to buy food for these old ladies. Those old ladies are my family members. They're starving. And today, as my granddaughter was pouring me into an evening dress, I, I didn't want the dress. I just wanted to come up here in my jeans, and usually I have a black hat on. <laughs> and I just, I, I just feel that closing the gap, as they call it, is not real. Let's, let's accept and value the first people of this country. Value their language. Value their songs. And let's talk about standing on sacred ground in real terms. Yeah, it is sacred. Let's do it and let's lead our nation, whether we're black, blue or, print, or pink, doesn't matter. We are humans on our sacred ground here together. Yeah. I need now to call for that treaty which seems to be leaving us all the time whilst we talk about entering other people's constitution. Constitution on Runakadan here. We have our constitution. Let our white brothers and sisters come to us and look at our constitution too, please. Thank you very much, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. She's a very hard act to follow. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Opera House, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here today. I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their leaders past and present. We're here this afternoon for a very special conversation with Father Frank Brennan and Mullandiri McCarthy about Indigenous recognition. Frank Brennan, 
is a Jesuit priest, a professor of law, a long-term advocate for social justice and rights for Aboriginal people and for refugees. He's the author of many, many works of law and also aimed at a general audience. And his most recent book, No Small Change, The Road to Recognition for Indigenous Australians. He's going to be in conversation this afternoon with Mullingeri McCarthy, a former Northern Territory politician, um, a senior journalist and presenter with NITV SBS, and the winner of the 2013 inaugural Deadlies Award for Journalism. Please welcome our guests. Thank you. Hello. Firstly, uh, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people on whose land that we now come and gather here. And as the annual woman from Borrelula, I'd like to certainly uh, acknowledge the elders of this country and to acknowledge my guest this afternoon, Father Frank Brennan. Lovely to see you. Great to be with you, Mandiri. Thanks. And wonderful to have the audience here. And can I just throw this in? I'd like to just welcome my dad, who's here for Father's Day as well. Hello. <laughs> well, we saw there, uh, Frank, with Rosalie Kurnoth-Monks, and I thought it was uh, important to be able to really set the tone of uh, a national NAIDOC gathering that took place uh, in Adelaide two months ago and the recognition of her as an incredible woman and elder right across the country. And we can see there, can't we, the, uh, you know, the passion and obviously the different thoughts mm. around constitutional recognition and treaty. Mm. And I think it's so great to see your mob being able to celebrate, particularly your leaders and your celebrated leaders like Rosalie. And she's putting great challenges there to us as a nation. I mean, the bottom line about treaty is that that's a separate conversation from what goes in a written constitution, but it's the big unresolved question that we still carry and none other than Tony Abbott, uh, maybe in part because his wife is from New Zealand, but he, even as Prime Minister, has referred to the Treaty of Waitangi and said, well, why can't we be doing something like that? But we do know that his predecessor, John Howard, said you could never do something like that. So the politics of it all is complex, but we know that it's a very big and wide agenda. That's right. And I think uh, what we'd like to do, ladies and gentlemen, this afternoon is to share with you uh, the parallel journeys in some respects of what's going on across the country from, uh, you know, Indigenous perspective, uh, non-Indigenous lens. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we know that uh, it is the uh, Federal Parliament in in Canberra and the leadership of, uh, of the parliament that will uh, be guided by uh, the, the rest of the country on which way it should go. Well, they will, but Mullinderry also, with our constitutional arrangements, anything that gets up requires the support, not just of the majority of Australians, it requires a majority in four of the six states. Now, that's a very, very big ask. There have only been eight constitutional changes in Australia. Now, I promised you I wouldn't bore you with legal details, <laughs> but could I just briefly trace those eight? Just to show how extraordinarily modest they are and to show how fearful we Australians are of change. Two related to the Commonwealth taking over state debts after Federation. Easy to give that the tick? Yes. Mm. Uh, two related to the way in which we choose senators. 
In fact, one was just about changing the date. They started from, I think, uh, January to July. But another one was after Bjorki Peterson played up, saying, if you're going to replace a senator, make sure it's someone of the same party. You then had a couple. One was to do with the retirement age of judges, uh, which was also fairly simply done. And so those sorts of changes have been quite simple. The other very simple one was to allow people who lived in the ACT or the Northern Territory to vote in referenda. They're very self-evident propositions. There have been two which related to Commonwealth power. One was after the Second World War to say that we could make laws in the Commonwealth Parliament about pensions and social welfare. And the other was the 1967 referendum, which was very modest. So any change that comes will undoubtedly be modest. And that's the big political challenge for the trust, for the Indigenous leadership of the country, the political leadership of the country, to be able to come to the table about what might be achievable. All right, well, let's, let's have a talk around where we are right now. We've seen uh, across uh, the, the media and certainly uh, in discussions generally that the Prime Minister and the opposition leader have held a bipartisan position to engage with uh, Indigenous representatives. And we certainly saw uh, the Kirribilli House gathering where 40 uh, Indigenous representatives met uh, with the Prime Minister and the opposition leader there were issues from that meeting in terms of the relationship with other uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country. But there was also a request that there should be an Indigenous or a number of Indigenous conventions before it comes to the question to all Australians. What are your thoughts there? My thoughts are that the politics of this is complex. Uh, I think everyone, including Prime Minister Abbott, would concede that obviously we've got to hear the voice of Aboriginal Australia, but it's got to be done in tandem with getting a sense of where the rest of us are. Now, at the moment, you've got some aspirations out there which are quite strong, but Abbott leads a Liberal Party where it's known. The WA Liberal Party is opposed to any change. So he's got to steer a very difficult course on that. But it does seem to me, in terms of the political process, a couple of things are just unimpeachable. One is that we've got to hear what is the Aboriginal list of aspirations. That's got to be on the table. But then, very squarely, we've got to hear back from Abbott and from Shorten, what of that list are they prepared to deliver on during the life of the next parliament? Now, if we hear that, it's then time to hear from the Indigenous leadership, well, look, do we want to run with that? Or do we want to say, we think that's so modest that we just wouldn't bother? Just leave us alone and leave us at least with the purity of our convictions about the need for something more substantive. So, th so that's that parallel journey. And you touched on the WA, uh, the Liberal sector, with the motion that went to the, the, the WA... Um, conference, uh, not wanting to recognise uh, the Indigenous people in the Constitution. So there is that, that balance. Let's have a look, Frank, at uh, just what happened at Kirribilli House. And if we can just show you, show the audience uh, the meeting at Kirribilli House. Thank you, Jared.
part of that, uh, the, the reason for showing you that was to show the gathering and the different thoughts. Uh, Tanya Hosh ha is doing a tremendous job in her role uh, with the recognition campaign, and it's no easy feat with any campaigns. Uh, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, the logistics of coordinating something like that, Frank, is enormous. I think Tanya has done a phenomenal job, and those with her. I mean, what we've got to face is at the moment, until you get a constitutional question on the table, it's very difficult to take things forward. But what they've done is a power of work to build what you might call the soft support in the Australian community that look, as a community, we're in favour of something. We just want to see some recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Constitution. How we do it, we don't quite know yet, but building that goodwill in the community, I think, has been an extraordinary job by Tanya and her team. Now, we saw a couple of weeks ago that the Prime Minister has agreed to have uh, Indigenous conventions, and this was with uh, the push by uh, Noel Pearson, by Pat Dodson, uh, by uh, Professor Megan Davis and by Kirsty Parker. So the question now, really, Frank, is how those councils or those conventions are going to take place across the country amongst First Nations people. Well, it's been two months since the meeting at Kirribilli, but hopefully those discussions can now get going. Uh, the very difficult part for your people, I think, is going to be that already we know from what's been said by Prime Minister Abbott that we're... People like Pat Dodson, who have been very strong on the need for a non-discrimination clause in the Constitution, it's been said, well, that's not a goer. And in response, Noel Pearson has been very strong on the need for there to be an Indigenous body which sits alongside the Parliament and is there to advise. Now, it was a surprise to a lot of us when the other day up there in Cape York... Tony Abbott seemed to indicate that he did not favour that being put in the Constitution. Now, I don't think that's the end of the game, but I do think what's critically important, and I've written about this at quite some length in my book, No Small Change, because I went back and looked at what happened after the 1967 referendum. It was a very modest constitutional change, but because it was carried by over 90% of the Australian population, that provided the impetus for change because Harold Holt, as the Prime Minister, was basically caught with his pants down, saying, well, I didn't know it was going to be this sort of strength of resolution. But what was needed after that was the catalyst for change, which was a three-member council for Aboriginal affairs. Now, being the 1960s, it was, of course, three white fellows. Now, it would be unimaginable we'd do something like this today. But back then, Stanard, Dexter and Coombs constantly agitated with both Liberal and Labor governments that they needed a statutory charter so that they could take on the bureaucrats with some real muscle. Now, I think there is a need for an Indigenous body which sits alongside Parliament, provides the advice, has a statutory charter... Now, I concede the point being put by the Prime Minister that you mightn't put it straight in the Constitution, but I don't think that's the end of the matter. It's to say, well, 
whatever you have in constitutional change, it's got to be complemented by something, including an Indigenous body which wins the support of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and can work with Parliament. You're talking about practical outcomes, though, aren't you, Frank? Because really, that's, that is what you often hear with uh, the different debate and discussions going on. How is it going to change my life living at Yundamu? What's being a part of the Constitution going to mean to me living at Fitzroy Crossing? Uh, what about you know, people on the Torres Strait who say, well, how's it going to change whether, uh, you know, standard of living, my health, how is being in the Constitution going to improve any of those things for me? Sure. Though I'm a lawyer, I don't pretend there's any great magic in a constitution. But I do think, if you think back to what Rosalie was saying so strongly at the end of her address there, it's, you know, can't we recognise the sacredness of the land? Can't we recognise our languages? Can't we recognise our cultures? Can't we recognise our dance, our music, etc.? Well, I think you're better off saying in your constitution that you recognise those things as the Australian people and that you give the Commonwealth Parliament power to make laws precisely with respect to the things that you recognise. Now, at the moment, we have to accept that our constitution doesn't mention Aborigines or Torres Strait Islanders. I mean, what a lot of Australians don't understand is the only thing that happened in 1967 was to take out the two adverse references to Aborigines. So there's no mention, it's silent. But the second thing is that the constitution contains two provisions which use the outdated term of race. And most Australians agree now that the term race has no place in our contemporary constitution. So if we could move to expunge those terms, if we could move to have those recognitions and enhance the Commonwealth power to make laws with respect to those things, and if we had an Aboriginal body which then worked with Parliament on future enactments of those recognitions, I do think that's a better start than what we presently got. So, in terms of the Parliament and even, even the proposal of, uh, of having more Indigenous representation, that again is another sense or another step of empowering uh, Indigenous people to be able to, to have a voice uh, where it matters, yes? It is, uh, and I've been one who has long said that I reckon, and it's no criticism of them, but imagine when John Howard was bringing in the federal intervention. Imagine if at that stage you had, say, Pat Dodson, Noel Pearson and Marcia Langton in the Senate. Now, I reckon they would have romped in an election. They'd be there in the Senate. Now, not even a politician of the strength of Howard would have dared legislate in relation to Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders if he was confronted by a group of senators like that. That was Aboriginal leaders that had real muscle and were there with the real power. Now, I've in the past sort of toyed with the idea whether you'd look at guaranteed seats for Aborigines in the Senate, but Sadly, I think the short-term answer to that, and once again, not to get into legalese, but just think back to 1975 with the denial of supply by the Senate or the delay of supply by the Senate, there's no way the major political parties would countenance a guaranteed corpus of seats in the Senate where your mob would have the capacity to stop supply. So I don't think there's any point in going there. 
I might come back to that if I do get a sure. moment. But but just touching on the Northern Territory, and and this is another aspect of the of the discussion that is going around with referendum is uh, the Northern Territory being a territory and not being a state, and therefore you have such a strong Indigenous population in the Northern Territory. And in terms of voting in a referendum, they would only have technically half a vote. So again, um, th that's another aspect uh, to bring into what does the road to recognition look like and should there be a seventh state in the mix? Sure, but um, make no mistake, the politics of that will be complex because half of the Northern Territory is covered by Aboriginal land title under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act passed by the Commonwealth Parliament. And Aborigines, particularly the land councils in the Northern Territory, have long been jealous of the protection of their title from interference by the Northern Territory and by their having a veto or a more significant control over mining on their land than most other Aboriginal landholders have in other jurisdictions. Good reason, you know, historically as well yeah. as you would have seen from yeah. your many times in the Northern Territory. Sure, but if the territory moves towards being a state, be in no doubt that those agitating for the territory to be a state will say that what is constitutive of a state is that we be allowed to control the land within our jurisdiction, particularly if it's over 50% of the land. So I think the whole thing about statehood for the territory is a mixed blessing. The other thing is bear in mind with our constitution that some in the territory presume that almost automatically you'd get 12 senators, but under our constitution, it's only the original states which are guaranteed the same number of senators. So the parliament could actually provide a lesser number of senators in the territory. So it mightn't quite be the panorama that people have been painting. I'm sure the territory would want eventual statehood, not an unequal state Indeed. position. But uh, it's interesting because uh, the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory has put statehood on the agenda for 2017, along with the, the, the Federal Parliament putting the referendum on the agenda for 2017. So we've got to be mindful that uh, these discussions are, are happening out there. And I come back to one word, and that is trust. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. this really, at the end of the day, comes down to how all Australians yeah. trust the process, trust what they're going to the polls to vote for. What's your thoughts there? Well, why not add a real wild card and say, oh, and at the same time we'll have a plebiscite on same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. for God's sake. Um, now, I know we can walk and chew gum at the same time, but I do think politicians ought to do their job and basically the people should be given the job for voting at referenda to change the constitution and keep those quite separate and apart. Okay. Frank, I know that uh, we're, we're coming to a particular time of our discussion where we can open the, uh, the floor to questions. So I thought I'd just uh, check in the audience and see if there are any particular uh, questions that may be asked of either Frank or myself. We do have microphones just here um, and also up on the panel up there. I understand they're the two positions that we have microphones for. So as we're chatting, um, if there are people who would like to speak, please go up to the microphone and then I'll be able to uh, check to see if uh, there are people there who want to ask questions. Oh, we've already... OK, fire away. Um, g'day, my name is Adam Berryman from Guardian Australia. G'day, Father. G'day, uh, Adam. Melendary, how are you? Look, um, uh, the question I had was just in relation to your... the way that you construe the uh, potential Indigenous forums that are going to happen, mm. you know. 
the way that you um, put the outcome that we need out of that is it has to be a list of demands that Indigenous Australia brings to, you know, the largely white parliament. Do you not think that this well, sets up... aspirations. Yeah. yeah. Do you not yeah. think that this sets up an opposition between Indigenous Australia and the Prime Minister, who, in his initial rejection of those conventions, said that he worried that it would produce a log of claims? Mm. Like, essentially what you're saying is that the Indigenous conventions have to produce an outcome which Abbott initially rejected. Like, don't you think this is a problem for a Prime Minister who's previously said he would sweat blood over it and then has since gone to backslide, you know, again and again and again. Like, do you not think this is a political problem? It, it's an enormous political problem. And, uh, but we're not going to fix it unless the trust develops. And as I've been saying that, I mean, in order to get the change, we've got to have some alignment between those Indigenous aspirations and what Abbott and Shorten are prepared to run with. Now... One of the things about constitutional change is it requires considerable leadership by your elected leaders. Now, it's no party political point to say that in terms of Australian history, to put the quotient of political leadership together of Abbott and Shorten, it's not the highest we've ever known <laughs> when it comes to seeking real legal and constitutional change. So, but there is the goodwill. Now, what Abbott has done from the beginning is to say, well, look, I'll sweat blood over this, but what I want to do is complete the Constitution rather than change it. Now, as I say, that's a tribute to his Jesuit education. It's a very theological notion to be able to complete something without changing it. But I think... I might say it's a Jesuitical notion. But... Well, it may be. But moving beyond that, it's, it's a clear indication that, look... Uh, this is not going to be about a radical change to our constitution. And so, as I've always said, um, Adam, I think you've got to be able to tick three boxes. One is, is what you're dealing with an Indigenous aspiration? Second, is it something which enjoys bipartisan support in our parliament? And third, is it consistent with the constitutional architecture? That is, you could truly say that this is completion rather than change. Now, I think what's gone on is that Abbott realised that there was the risk of the Aboriginal aspirations running out of control, so he wrote that rather strange letter. But as a result of that, I think what he's done is call back into dialogue uh, leaders like Pat Dodson and uh, Noel Pearson. Now, I think in terms of moving forward, the only way in which it can happen is if there's going to be the personal trust, and I don't want to single out Aboriginal leaders, but at the very least, if you do not have trust between Abbott, Shorten, Pearson and Dodson on a way forward, then you may as well forget it. Uh, thank you. My name is Pino Migliorino. I'm interested in, in the way you've just described that scenario of change. And what I'd like to reference is probably the Prime Minister's comments two days ago about the Syrian refugees, where he maintained that uh, the Australian policy in terms of turning back the boats was the most effective thing that Europe could learn from us, when, without actually talking about how, how abhorrent that is. 
But the point I would make is that he clearly does reflect in terms on how he sees the, the voter base in terms of this almost um, manic fear of, of, of asylum seeker boats entering Australia. Isn't that then the issue in terms of isn't the real issue around recognition that we actually need to get a populist to be so supportive of it that he will actually see it as electoral advantage? Because I've seen nothing in his leadership which actually sees him as a leader of social change. Mm. This is a process of social change. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Pina. I, I think it is, but my reading of him has been that for whatever reason over some years, this is the one issue on which he says, I want to make a difference in terms of social change. Mm. Now, I mean, at the same time, there have been the extraordinary cutbacks of uh, financial payments to Aboriginal communities, to Aboriginal organisations, and how you hold all of that together, I don't know. But in terms of trying to affect this social and constitutional change, I think that if we are to lose faith in Abbott, then I think the prospects of holding the Liberal Party in the tent to move forward on constitutional change in the life of the next parliament, you may as well throw it away. In that, I mean, I think if you had someone like Malcolm Turnbull leading the Liberal Party saying, well, I want to do this and a bit more, I would bet London to a brick that the WA Liberal Party would just dig in and say, well, that's it. All bets are off. I think, and just expanding on that, I mean, in terms of what you've said about uh, the finances, Frank, I mean, over half a billion dollars was cut from uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander agencies right across this country. The biggest cut that uh, uh, Aboriginal organisations and Torres Strait Islander organisations have seen in decades. So you're right, you know, balancing the, the, the suffering that's happening in these organisations, uh, health, education, you know, the day-to-day -day, um, work of people, uh, that's where that trust issue stands out. It's like, well, if my life is really... doesn't matter in this context, why should that matter? Is it... or is this the biggest distraction ever for all Australians? Mm. OK, next speaker. I'm... Is that working? No. I'm Phil Bradley from uh, Reconciliation for Western Sydney and Australians for Native Title and Reconciliation. And uh, I was going to go to that very point of trust that, that you raised. Mm -hmm. And uh, don't you think the cutting of $500 million out of Aboriginal programs has done a lot of harm to developing that trust? And although Australians for Native Title and Reconciliation is uh, broadly... Uh, supportive of uh, constitutional recognition, it, it is so without knowing the final form of words and not knowing fully whether the... the cons well, we know the consultation hasn't been as good as it should have been with Aboriginal people, particularly in Western Sydney, but it's, it's also without knowing um, the, that, that final form of words as to whether it can be agreed with. But we do know that many Aboriginal people are very suspicious and many actually oppose uh, the concept in general terms as it may forestall uh, the proper treaty that Aboriginal people so justly deserve. So is it your assessment, without knowing the final form of words, that broadly constitutional recognition, removal of the racist provisions and acknowledgement of Aboriginal people, which is obviously important, 
and hopefully pretty much everyone would support, uh, would that forestall um, a, a proper treaty for Aboriginal people? Mm. Well, your first question is simply answered that, of course, the financial cuts meant a loss of trust and a lot of hurt in Aboriginal communities. In terms of the second, I think that what we're confronted with is the situation that what the formula of words will be will only be worked out once these general consultations have occurred. And I would imagine with this referendum council they're talking about having, that it would recommend that once you've got the broad parameters set, you'd have some sort of constitutional convention which would then finalise the particular wording. I think that would be the sensible way to go. But given particularly the lack of bipartisanship in our parliament in recent years, I think if your sustainable goal is to have constitutional change during the life of the next parliament, then the only thing that's conceivable is that you have an agreed formula of words by the major political parties before the next federal election, so that then both Abbott and Shorten, if they're still leaders of their respective parties, go into the election saying, whether I win or lose, I will lead my party to either sponsor this or to support it in the parliament, and that during the life of the next parliament, there will be bipartisan support for this formula. Now, if there not be an interest in that by Aboriginal Australia, that it's seen to be too minimal, then of course two things follow. One is a political assessment gets made by them, and I do not envy you and your people in this, but the political assessment has to be made are we better off grabbing something now, modest as it might be, or waiting for the future? Now, I'm cautious, all that sort of thing. I'm always one in politics for grabbing the bird in the hand rather than the two in the bush. But I am not an Aboriginal Australian, I am not an Indigenous leader. It's not my call. And I will have absolute equanimity as to whatever call on that is made. But if there be the decision made that we're better off waiting, it has to be conceded that part the cost of that is the risk that there'll be no change at all for some time to come, but definitely that for some added period of time, you'll be dealing with a constitution which doesn't mention Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders and which maintains the two outdated notions of race. So they're the things in the mix. I think too, just to just to add to that, Frank. I think the it's fraught though with uh, uh, any promise that's made in a current sitting of Parliament and an expectation that it's going to continue into the next term of a Parliament if it's the different players, if it's a different leadership, and and that in itself um, holds some more complexities. I'm conscious we've got quite a few questions, and I might go. We've got a lady up the top there. Yep, I'm, you've been patiently waiting. Thank you. Up in the skies. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess my question is about the referendum. Um, Indigenous Australians make up about 2.5% of the overall Australian population. So, do you think that it's problematic to ask the 97.5% of white Australians to decide on an issue that concerns the future? of Australia's Indigenous people, and is that kind of counterintuitive to this idea of self-determination? Hmm. 
Well, it, I mean, question. it's a good and deep question, but, I mean, the, the lawyer's answer is that if you want to amend the Constitution, then this is just what you've got to do. But the, then the political issue, and I think part the psychological issue that you're highlighting, is that for that process, uh, there are many of us who want to respect the capacity as far as possible for self-determining Aboriginal groups to play their distinctive role in saying what it is that they want, in that, after all, it's self-evident in terms of politics. If you're talking about recognition and respect, then you want to make sure those people who are going to be recognised and respected say that we actually get it in those terms rather than seeing it as something which disguises another political purpose. Would there be the possibility of um, the proportion of responses being taken into account? No, not, not under our constitution. What, what that would require is, first of all, a preliminary amendment of the constitution to have a majority of people in majority of states to vote for a different mode of amending the constitution in these terms. And there's nothing surer than that complexity and fear are the two things that most readily kill off referenda. And if any doubt about that, as I say, there have been eight successful referenda Three of those successful referenda were carried in 1977 under the political brilliance of Bob Ellicott, who was the Federal Attorney General at the time, and read anything Ellicott has ever had to say about these matters, and it all comes down, once you take out the legalese, to keep it simple, stupid. So. <laughs> Yeah. OK. <laughs> Thank you. I might just go to this gentleman here. And I've just uh, received a note saying the videos are fine to play. So I might, after this question, just see if we can play the, the Tanya Hosh one. OK? Mm. Just, Jared, we'd probably play that same one after this question. Hi. Um, thank you for being here. Um, over the last week, we've seen how one image can change a lot. You know, um, here, Europe, the whole world. So my question is, what do you think it will take to change things in people's minds when it comes to Aboriginal Australians? Mm. Well. <laughs> what do we think it'll change, or what needs to change in people's take? minds? Do we need do we need to wait till we see a image of that strength? So you mean informing the broader Australian community about the issues? Well, I guess just to wake people up. Look, no, it is that, that's interesting. We all saw what happened with Adam Goods. And I think, you know, uh, when you look at an issue, and, I, and I'm just using that as a, as a most recent example and an extraordinary example of how it polarised the nation. And uh, for some, it was deeply uncomfortable, certainly for Adam, um, incredibly hurtful. But what it did for our country was actually uh, allow each and every single person to actually dig deep and really ask themselves, well, how would I feel? And I was trying to explain it to my sons. And I said, well, look, you know, this is really quite simple, but the, but the incident in this, in this case was also about uh, bullying, intimidation, you know, racism. It was every, all of those things. It was ultimately how do we respect one another when someone says stop? So I think, um, and I use that because that, that, that is a clear example that polarised our country and had everyone having a view 
uh, of sorts and to be able to talk about it. So we need uh, a, a conversation that allows that passion to come in, but in a constructive way and in a way that takes away the fear. Like we have to demystify this fear of the unknown to be able to talk about these issues uh, in a respectful environment. So how do we do that? Recognise would say they've been trying to do that with their campaigns, uh, with their journeys across the country, uh, with the profiles that they're building. But I actually think it starts in our educational system, you know, in our schools, what we teach our children, uh, knowing you know, the First Nations people of this country. Every single day, the learning uh, that, that our generations of young Australians, what are they learning about our First People? So there is no uh, clear answer in terms of, hey, let's have this massive campaign, which should happen anyway, but we should have a, a daily, constant uh, discussion in our educational system. Frank? Okay, can we... Sorry, Frank, yep. I mean, nothing near as shocking or stark as what you've referred to, but I dedicate the book to a young Aboriginal man by the name of Liam, who most of you would never have known. But even those of you who are not Catholic might have an image of him back in 1986 when he was a newborn baby. He was the baby handed to Pope John Paul in Alice Springs that he held up to the world. Now, as I say, Liam over the next 23 years had no one to hold him and he took his own life. And I dedicated the book to him, a young man from Daly River in the Northern Territory. And I was able to go and present the book to his family and to his community before it got launched. And as I say in the dedication in the book, uh, I dedicate the book to him and to others like him who, as I say, fall between the dreaming and the market. And I'm drawing on the image which is used by the great anthropologist W.E.H. Stanner, where he spoke about the Aboriginal mindset as being that of the dreaming and the real challenges of European lifestyle being that of the market. And as I've often observed, I think, and I think you would attest to this, that there is no happier Aboriginal person than the one who has a secure foothold in both the dreaming and the market. And there is no more disoriented Aboriginal person who has lost or never had the foothold in the market or in the dreaming. Mm. And I think that that's what's required. Now, on the positive note, I was at a fabulous event at the British High Commission in Canberra the other night, which even shattered some of my stereotypes, I have to admit, Mullendary. Uh, this... Charles Perkins Trust gives scholarships for Aboriginal students who are going to Cambridge and to Oxford. This year, eight Aboriginal people on their merits have qualified for admission to Oxford and Cambridge. Now, two of them were getting the scholarships the other day. The stereotype which was shattered in me was the young Aboriginal guy who got up to receive one of the awards who's going off to do a doctorate at Cambridge in applied mathematics. And I thought, my God, something really has changed. And a young Aboriginal woman got up and with a sense of time, which I really envied, and she said, you know, the first hundred years for our mob since white settlement was absolute hell. She said the second hundred years wasn't much better. She said, but I reckon the third hundred years is going to be pretty good. <laughs> and I think to be able to hear that 
from young Indigenous Australians, particularly those mm. with the benefit of the education of which you're speaking, I think that's good news. And I'm going to challenge you on that maths, Frank. I mean, how else would we know how many to cook for in the family and all the food <laughs> and the hunting that we've got to do? Come on. <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, can we just see, Jared, if we can have a look at that same video that we tried to show earlier? NAIDOC Week, celebrating Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, is officially underway. Crowds marking the occasion with traditional dancing, ceremonies, native seed planting demonstrations and traditional bush tucker, kangaroo meatballs and pikelets covered in jams made from native fruits. Cross between a peach and something else? Maybe like a strawberry. And I'm so happy that we do things like this. And while there'll be plenty of fun this NAIDOC week, there'll also be one very serious discussion about our constitution. It's really big. Um, it's a rare opportunity to be able to sit down with a Prime Minister and Opposition Leader to talk in this way. Tomorrow, Tanya Hosh will be one of 40 Indigenous leaders who'll sit down in an unprecedented bipartisan meeting at Kirribilli House. There, they'll discuss a proposed referendum to change the Constitution so that it recognises Indigenous Australians. Well, the Constitution is written as though Australia began in 1788, and we all know that that is not true. Currently, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are excluded from mention in our founding document. The Constitution also includes a number of references to race that allow for discrimination. But even among Aboriginal people themselves, there's disagreement about how to change it. When the um, leaders are in the room, they will realise the seriousness mm, of this... Right and hopefully put their egos at bay in order to get our people and the Australian people across the line in this referendum. I'd like to see it change, you know, and yeah, for them to recognise who we are and what we mean to this land. I reckon we should acknowledge Indigenous Australians. That's, they're the people that started our land. Still, more work to raise awareness about the proposed referendum needs to be done. Did you know much about it before today? No, I hadn't heard a lot about it, so, yeah, it's interesting. It's a good step forward, I think. Of the 44 referendum proposals in the past, only eight have been successful. There is no expectation that tomorrow's historic summit here at Kirribilli House will deliver a final model for change. It really is an initial step to allow participants to firstly work out what they agree on and then put a plan in place to address and eventually resolve the points of contention. Late today, the Prime Minister welcomed participants to Kirribilli House for a social occasion before getting down to business tomorrow. The Prime Minister says he hopes the referendum will take place by May in 2017, the 50th anniversary of the successful 1967 referendum, which granted increased rights to the first Australians. Ellie Lang, SBS World News. Thank you, Jared. We've got a lady who's been waiting for a little while, so I apologise for that. If you'd like to ask the next question. Thanks so much. Um, thanks, both of you, for giving us the chance to talk and think about this important issue and to the festival. Um, my question is sort of came up in a couple of questions ago, but I think there's more that can be said on it, and I'd be really interested to hear your views, Mullandiri, on essentially the question of is a bird in the hand worth more than two in the bush? I think... On the one hand, I could see sort of a modest change to the constitution as a small step in a, a larger, longer history that we might be moving towards. On the other hand, I see Indigenous or Aboriginal people as having experienced so much undervaluing or devaluing that would, would acceptance of a modest change to the constitution just be sort of more um, undervaluing, more of a sort of acceptance of not very much, and would it 
create a, a barrier to future progress? Mm. Yes, well, I mean, this is where we... I said at the outset that uh, this is about a parallel journey. Uh, with uh, with uh, Indigenous Australia and non-Indigenous Australia. And, you know, clearly, as Frank has pointed out, um, trying to change the constitution in itself is a massive task, irrespective of what the question is. Uh, just the instruments and the tools of the Westminster system show the, the complexities just in that system alone. Um, I think uh, there needs to be, from as a Yanua woman, I think there needs to be a... Uh, a, a digging deep of really solid goodwill. How far you go with that goodwill, you've got to push beyond the fear and the unknown. For, for many, and I can only speak for where, I, uh, where my family group come from, we took three decades to prove to the, to the courts that we were the traditional owners of that area. And, and we were the first under the Northern Territory Aboriginal Land Rights Act to go for land. So many people died in that journey, and so many, over so many decades we kept asking, why do we have to keep proving who we are as Yanua people? And then, uh, you know, only just a few months ago, the minister came up and said, oh, I'm here to give you this, give you your land back, but it's really not that. I, I'm here to kind of just say, under this law, you're, you're recognised. So. I think that we have to, as a country, uh, really unpack the layers. We have to unpack the layers of how we really began and the relationship, but do we have the courage as a country to do that? Are we bold enough to dig deep? The question is uh, really critical to me uh, from both a personal and professional level, working in the parliament in the Northern Territory. I was also the Minister for Statehood trying to, to draw together all the different uh, language groups. There's over 100 Aboriginal languages in the Northern Territory. That alone, plus the cattle industry, the mining industry, and all the different agendas. How do you bring people together? And we've just got to have, I think, we've got to find the one common thing, whatever that may be, We've got to find the one common thing that we all believe in and hold on to that to steer our way through. And I don't think we've found what that one common thing is yet. Mm. Okay, any, uh, we've got a lady up the top. Yep. Hi, sorry. Um, I understand that political change and process and all of that can be time-consuming and painfully slow, and as the gentleman alluded to earlier, obviously social change is one of the things we should certainly look at. Why don't we inform Australians of the incredibly appalling statistical differences between the health conditions, the mortality rates, the suicide rates between Aboriginal and the rest of Australia? Surely every Australian would be appalled enough to want to make that change as a matter of urgency. It is an embarrassment. Surely we can do something about... Is there, is there, do you have any thoughts of how we can put those statistics up front and make it a little bit more real for the rest of Australia to actually see that problem? That is appalling to me as an Australian. I think it's, it, it's, an, it's, it's absolutely spot on. And this is where I think, going back to the previous question, uh, the issues, say, for example, even with WA and, and the concerns about the closure of communities, uh, over 100, 150 communities closing, the fact that the suicide rate in this country is, is, is astronomical. Um, 
how do we put that at the forefront? And this, was, this comes back to that question of, well, how will the constitution or any change to it impact here where it really matters? The fact that Australia has the highest uh, levels of incarceration rate where 14 times Indigenous people are being incarcerated, that you, you go into jail for a, a parking fine and you come out in a coffin. So, spot on. And that's where, why, the, the complexities amongst the different groups. And it all comes back to that one word of trust. If, if half a billion dollars has been taken out where it matters in the lives of people, why would the constitution and any change to it really make a difference? Frank, your thoughts? Um, I'm on the board of Kevin Rudd's National Apology Foundation with people like Jackie Huggins, who featured on one of the videos there, Pat Turner, who wrote the foreword to my book, uh, Aboriginal leaders who are very concerned about this issue. And what we're looking at is setting up a fully endowed chair at a university precisely to work on those issues, which could then buttress a national address each year so as to call the country back to an account of conscience on these matters. And I think there's a need for much more of that. Thank you. The gentleman here. Um, hi, I'm Matthew Beard from the Ethics Centre. I'm interested in the idea of what we might call small art recognition, those sort of daily steps and, and practical changes. Um, a lot of things that I've read have suggested that one of the most powerful motivators of social change are concepts like pride and honour. And when we look at New Zealand as an example and their relationship to the Maori culture, there seems to be, whether you are Maori or not, a sense of pride in the existence of this culture. Aidan Ridgway, I know, has talked about the idea of introducing uh, an Australian equivalent to, say, the haka, which the wallabies might perform. I was wondering what you thought about ideas like that, sort of non-legal, non-political, but still very powerfully symbolic steps that might be taken to encourage a sense of pride and honour in the, in the Indigenous identity that Australia holds. Can I just throw something back there and say, well, that, that is probably what Adam Goods was trying to do. So, so again, we, we come back to the deeper question of how deep do we want to go in, in bettering our understanding and relationship with one another? Um, and and that's, that's probably the most recent um, and, and, as I said, the most polarising. But I think those things are really important. Um, I, I think, and, and that's a personal level, but I, I think the more it can be done uh, in, in different places across the country, uh, I think it goes a long way to, to breaking down barriers and help demystify some of the things that seem to frighten people's relationship and understanding with one another. Mm. And I'm a great backer of small R and capital R recognition. Mm. Can we just have a look at one more um, video? Uh, this one is a sit-in that took place on uh, the 26th of January or 27th of January. And I just want to show you this to give you an indication of what is building across different parts of the country, and that is anger and a lot of resentment. And this is, again, where it's going to take, uh, you know, the wisdom of Solomon, if you like, for the leadership of both the Indigenous community and the non-Indigenous community to, to help weave a way through to, to keep all Australians focused on whatever that one common goal is that we want to do in walking together. Jared, could we just show the sitting? First Nations activists march on Parliament House calling January 27 the first day of resistance. Always was, always will be and they didn't stop for police. 
They knew there was going to be a protest, but the activists took them by surprise when they refused to stop. Protesters aren't allowed on Parliament's forecourt. This march went all the way to the front doors. This government here is a racist government. Yeah. A racist government. They have to face us one day, and that day is now, and they will face us to talk about sovereignty and who really owns this country and the fact that we are a sovereign people. Protests have been happening all over the country for months. The anger is nearly always directed at the government. This is a battle with all political parties. We have to remain apolitical and fight the lot of them because their policies are nothing short of genocide via government policy. They are trying to kill us off. We are legally invisible in their system. They do not recognise their own High Court decisions. You have a racist legislative in here who will change the intent of the High Court all the time when they recognise that we have prior rights. Members of the Noongar community travelled all the way from West Australia, angry that WA Premier Colin Barnett is trying to close down many bush communities. He's trying to close all the communities in WA that aren't considered under the Westminster system viable. Viable. Over 120 communities, people getting pushed off their homelands, and that is wrong. The flags didn't fly outside Parliament for long. The protesters left after a short sit-in, vowing to return when Parliament resumes in a few weeks. Miles Morgan, NITV News. So, ladies and gentlemen, I wanted to be to show you that. Um, and going back to the to the question the lady raised up there in terms of uh, the issues of suicide and high incarceration rates, uh, deeply real issues in the lives of First Nations people in this country. And when you have such passion, and when you have people dying at alarming rates, you can see uh, what we're facing in this country in terms of where we're going and, and the uh, arguments uh, for and against and those who think, uh, you know, the lives of First Nations people need to matter first. Frank, just a last uh, couple of words from you before no, we finish up. No, I think up. you should have the last word. I just want to thank you, uh, particularly for the professionalism with which you drew together those videos of the diversity of Aboriginal viewpoints. I think it's been stunning, so thank you. Oh, thank you, mm. Frank. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.